Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, Lewis and Ann are speaking with Mitch Barukowitz, founder and managing partner of Merida Capital Partners. Merida Capital Partners is a private equity investment firm targeting fundamental growth drivers, underpinning the rapid development of the legal cannabis industry. The company's investment emphasis focuses on cultivation technologies, products, and services associated with the evolution of cannabis as an agricultural product, a natural plant-based medicine, a constituent in pharmaceutical formulations, and a recreational consumer product. Mitch and Merida are a big presence in the industry, as you'll soon hear in our interview. This is one of those episodes where you're going to really want to lean forward and listen intently. Now on to our interview with Mitch Barukowitz. We are going to do this again, Anne, which is record our banter before, or I'm sorry, after our conversation. And we just had Mitch Barukowitz in, who is a ball of fire. I mean, that guy is passion about cannabis personified. And so knowledgeable. He's just, I just wanted to pick his brain all day, which we kind of did. And he's really, really cool um, and funny and, and you know, and, and, and uncomfortable with, with me naming names. And every time I'm with him, I do that. I'm like, I will talk to him in private. And, and I think he was shocked that I was willing to name names and call people out, um, you know, but Welcome to Lewis Goldberg. Exactly. Hi, I'm Lewis Goldberg. Nice to meet me. <laughs> and I'm going to find whatever makes you uncomfortable and do it a lot. <laughs> it's very true. Let's get into it. Let's just get into it. I hope you enjoy our interview with Mitch. Barukowitz from Merida Capital. All right. So, Mitch. Yes. Merida is one of a, a handful of you know private equity venture capital guys working in the cannabis space, you know? Can you take us through your origin story? Like, how did you start to work in cannabis? Why did you want to invest in this space? You know, take us to that moment where you realized that you were the the cannabis investing Superman. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, well, so- And what your cape looks apparently like. Apparently you want me to talk about the future because uh, I, I don't think we have that mindset. Uh, we're such grinders that I don't think it's, uh, it's impossible to turn your head into thinking anything of a Superman, especially with the challenges we saw this week. But uh, my origin story is really, uh, it's, it goes all the way back to 2000 when I was, uh, my brother and myself and a, and a best friend owned a, a day trading firm um, that we were, we were working sort of on the algorithmic sort of early, early days. My brother was an early Soz bandit and our third partner was hit by a car and paralyzed. And through his, uh, through very heroic struggle with pain, and he really was always a self-aware person, and he moved out to Colorado in 06 and 07 to, uh, to try to get off opioids. He felt like opioids really decreased the quality of his life. Uh, very thoughtful guy, very meditative. When We were roommates when he got hit as well, and, um, and he just couldn't function the way he wanted to function. How Even, old were you? In, how old we were you? 25. He was 24, so he's a year younger. So an incredibly tragic story, but 
in his, you know, he dealt with the pain. He was always a, a very uh, thoughtful person and would care more about other people's pain and, and struggle. And eventually said, now i got to focus on myself. And, uh, you know, opioids are completely ruining my, 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 my existence may be diminished physically, but my mental capacity is here. And these are, this is ruining how I feel about life. And I need to go make a change. And so he moved out to Colorado. And at that time, I was uh, running the legal team of, of Pally Capital. And uh, which was an incredibly challenging environment, you know, big broker dealer, as you, as you know, in New York. And uh, and so he would send me some of the legal documents. And there was there was a lot of workarounds being done in Colorado because of the the residency. And I started to look at it. And, and um, it was medicinal. It was not it was yet. medicinal, but so early days in Colorado. Actually, in fact, there wasn't really a law that allowed it. It was more of a there was a framework. That, it was decriminalized. It was it decriminalized. Right. Yeah. So dispensaries started to self-evolve. And growing, and um, it was around at, right after the Cole memo. I'm sorry, the Ogden memo, yeah. that really changed things. That said, patients won't be prosecuted, and that's when Colorado, which felt different than ca- California. I, I had cousins in California, knew the California industry well, and uh, it was different than like the Venice Beach edibles. This was like tech people in Colorado. It was like that hippie, crunchy culture. So there was a, like a little bit more of a thoughtful, less pioneering, more of like there's a business here. And in watching the Colorado evolution by 2010, you could tell. That that this could easily start to travel east, even and though it, it also wasn't even, presaged, you know, the 2012 where it went legal. Right. Well, that's the right. So the coal memorandum, and then Colorado became legal, and in through that challenge, watching how they they owned like a building that would rent out space to other people, and watching how the business evolved, I really started to get a deep sense. But I was running a family office at the time and doing investment banking, and um, I started to get really deeply involved in the legal side and. And I was—I had a ton of friends in Colorado because I grew up in Long Island, where a lot of people like to move out there. You know, the the natural, the naturalists. And I started introducing my friends around, and I started uh, really getting deep, more deeply involved in the substructure of like w- talking to lawyers. And um, and at that time, then Co- uh, Connecticut announced it was going to change its laws, mm-hmm. and um, and we—they were going to give out a you know a small set of licenses based on whatever principles they eventually announced. And I felt like, you know, my public company background and other things allowed me to to write like a 10Q or a 10K and I was going to treat this like a real company. And that's when I really crossed over and said... Um, so we should blame I'll Connecticut. Blame Connecticut for having the first uh, for-profit legal uh, regime, which, which actually helped build programs like Illinois. Without the success of Connecticut as a stable regime, you don't get the, 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 the state's... That, that came after because a lot of them looked at Connecticut as a test case. But, and I'll tell you, nobody has ever said anything good about Connecticut in the cannabis space it's, before. But yeah. but it's true. I mean, the way you're describing it. But I've never heard anybody say, because, you know, people have talked about yeah. Maine as like the, you sure. know, the first East Coast state. And they've talked about the failures of New York and the failure of New Jersey. But nobody's ever said... It's all because Connecticut's got of one of the best programs. Actually, there's a few flaws in the underlying laws, but for for a state that passed a law in 2012, which became a regulatory scheme in 2013, which became an application process, and four licensees. Now, Cureleaf owns one, Tuatar owns one, and um, and uh, Cureleaf, Tuatar, and I'm um, like, oh, and and GTI owns Advanced Grow Labs. The one I helped build is still the only independent. They're doing very well. It's well run. But that, or, you know, that, that experience of going through a, a rigorous, a nine-month process, um, a 2,000-page application, which had to be delivered uh, in 10 copies in paper, which uh, was, as a short guy, it's good. I, I now have a stepladder 
naturally. Just one copy is enough for help me. Uh, yeah, you, you, I you and I have the the, 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 sure. the New York Jew short thing oh, going yeah. big time. Except you still have a lot more hair. So <laughs> you've got me beat there. But um, Dude, I am so flock of seagulls today. It's unbelievable. Yeah, no, it's great. It's actually quite uh, – it's great to be here. And, and, and by the way, thank you so much for having me. I mean, it's, just, yeah, it's incredible. Know, love hanging but, out with you. Yeah. So um, And then, you know, what's interesting is when after we, we finished Connecticut and found out that we were the highest scoring team – we, we sort of took a deep breath and said, this is not going to happen again for years. And with, within three weeks, we were getting emails from all of the states like Minnesota, Illinois, places where people were changing laws. And then it just went on hyperdrive. And, and after two or three or four years of that, um, it, I just, there was just a, a significant difference in opinion and how you could scale this. And I felt like maybe the best way to scale would be to be an investor, to do more of what was more core to me. I didn't want to be like a grower who worked 40 hours a week in front of the plant. While I respect that deeply, that just wasn't – I felt like the opportunity was in helping shape the industry, not necessarily be a grower. And, and just because my background on the legal side, and I felt like I had a, a huge advantage in that I understand legal, filings, government interaction. You know, I had done some work for the World Trade Center Recovery Grant Program in 2003. So I, I had understood what bureaucracy, how it gets shaped, and how it could shape an industry. And I, I just really wanted to be true to my core. And, and that's why every day when I wake up and, you know, I have great guys like Max Gerard. Why don't you say hi, Max? Max why don't you say hi? Yeah. yeah, how's it going? So I, I brought our <laughs> hi, Max. I brought our rock star uh, analyst and who... He's really, I mean, he's a partner as much as anyone else. I just haven't officially. And he's young. He's you. You. This guy's like, brilliant. He's it's, like. He's like whew. totally like. He's young and a handsome dude. And yeah. I mean, we're like, rocking the same hair today. Yeah, yeah. your hair is shorter than mine. I just got a cut. We're gonna need some photos. Oh, we'll get to accompany we'll get the pod. Yeah, yeah, we, we will. Uh, no problem, man. We'll we'll do it. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, when we were when we got all these letters from people around the the country, like, hey, apply here with us. You know, it's um, it, it started becoming overwhelming, and I realized I was spending so much time on the road, and all my mind share was there, and that's when I, around 2014, which I know is ancient years to most people, but to Dog me it feels years. like yesterday. Yeah, it was that was when I decided that this was something I think I can make a living out of. Um, and then of course it just so happens that Grow Generation at that time I had met them through friends in Connecticut, and they said there's this little hydroponic retail company. They were doing you know a million in revenue when I met them, and I I was still I still was running an investment bank at that point and I convinced them to take on this client and I brought Brooke Grogen public so not a bad decision there and yeah, that's when I realized we know those guys well yeah and I wanted to be a principal that, that's the other thing is I didn't want to be a, a, a broker I didn't want to be a banker I wanted to help these companies shape their governance their, their financial and I just felt that my background was a good analog for you know Sort of, I'd always done esoteric investing, and this is the ultimate esoteric investment, or it was. Wait, it's become a little more normal. coming. We'll talk about something okay. offline. Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the the difference between you guys and some of your peers is that um, you don't just dump capital in and, and walk away. You own and operate licenses. Can you talk about how you draw the line from investing and operating? Because you just said you don't want to be, you know, in front of a grow for forty hours a week. Well, we don't. Uh, so Merida, it, it's deeply involved in a lot of the ancillary companies. But from an operation perspective, obviously the MCP Wellness uh, investment in Michigan is it was a, a slight departure from our core. We have we have invested in some MSOs. It's obviously a space we know very well because, in some ways, uh, you know we were the first MSO because we also won a license in Minnesota. So 2013 or 14, there's three licenses that exist. There's an Illinois license, a Minnesota, and a Connecticut, and we were, you know, deeply involved in two of the three. But um, we don't really operate them. We invest in great operators on that side. I mean, in the partners in Michigan, these guys are just incredible retail operators. And, you know, one of the things I had done early on in, in 
I guess you could say, uh, in the raw data, is I, I felt really confused by how Connecticut was having such an adoption issue with patients. And so I looked at other analogs around the country, other programs. And so I'd spent a lot of time out in Michigan uh, meeting with a lot of the caregivers. Which is actually a really good medical program. It's, it's the best. Well, and there was no rules. So it wasn't really a medical program as much as it was a, a group of patients, a massive group, right. and a group of 72 plant-growing you know, caregivers and an unofficial dispensary business. So in 14 and 15, I, I was looking at that model compared to Connecticut to try to understand what the friction was to helping Connecticut get to to be a bigger program because it was really hard to get patients early on. In fact, there was probably a handful of doctors that rescued that program because no one had ever done this and doctors were scared of losing their DA license. So Connecticut only had maybe 150, 200 doctors who could give a prescription. And in that group, there were like five that were doing all the prescriptions. Right. And so, um, and, and I think that experience is, is crucial to framing how Merida looks through everything in such a granular way because you can't replicate that knowledge. Like if you weren't there in 13, 14, 15, you can't pretend to be there. You can't pretend you know well, what it was like. So, so it's guys like you and Cresco, sure. um, and there are a few others. P. Cadence. Yeah. If you remember the, the three deep questions I did with him, I told him a story about meeting him in York, Pennsylvania in late 14 when we were like two of maybe 20 people crisscrossing the country looking at these medical limited licenses. Um, yeah, That's and, when we got involved because yeah. we were involved with one I of the applicants. I remember seeing KCSA and I was like, yeah. Who are these guys? Yeah, we were There's involved no with companies for you to represent. Well, yeah, and we were involved with a, a you know an applicant who didn't win the license, but we got more. Pre- there were forty two applicants this in is New York. York. Yeah, this is New York in fourteen. Yeah. How many? Forty three. Forty three. There yeah. were forty three, yeah. and you know the guys that we were working with got more press than all of the other sure. ones, but they they so were like the eighteenth ranked. I know who you're talking ranked. about. Yeah, here's uh, there's the Compassionate Care Center yeah. of New York, and they they partnered with. Uh, they partnered the with Takuno alum. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, sure. So Eric Lerner and and, and Barry yeah. Farkas. Yeah. yeah, sure. So great. By the way, you have gone on to do some really interesting things. Takuno Eric Lam. has done some really interesting yeah. stuff. You know, yeah. uh, and Takuno alum is a great company. Great organization. Um, yeah. You know, that's when we really saw like the entire vertical space because we had you know played right. around with so a couple of companies. After, think about like yeah. think of the three or four years I spent with a machete in the wilderness. You were way ahead of us. Well, I, I, and, and I we are way ahead way. of most others. That's that's true. And so let me ask you a question because I, I always think it's interesting that people it's hard to unless you're in the room, you you guys are formulating your application and you think it's a sure thing. We're sh- we're surely getting a license. Worst feeling in the world, right? Losing, but but how did you feel going into it? You felt like there's no chance. Actually, we so we didn't have anything to do with the application okay. process. We were okay. we were we were the PR and and oh, we were working with a group well, called you guys the did Advanced good messaging, Group. We I did, did great. read a lot about you guys before you guys applied. We got the first. Guy, we literally got the very first person on CNBC that was a cannabis executive. And what did it get you from an it, application? Perspective? Nothing actually. That so, a two fifty gets you a metric card. Exactly, and that's you know that's what we learned, which was that press is not going to help an application. It actually may hurt an application application um you just got to have a great application writer and have have all of the stuff we've learned something about new york later obviously it's oh they had their thumb on the scale well so everyone just be aware that that is lewis saying that not mitch berukowitz who still wants to be involved in some licenses but the reality is we finished 13th as a group um you beat my guys yeah well and 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 we our application was premised on we're doing this in two states legally right now we're one of only two companies in the world doing extract only in a legal regime in Minnesota, Vireo being the other. Vireo won a license. So obviously that worked, but you never know 
what like Missouri is about to give out licenses. You never know what works on a license. And I think the lack of unification is actually one of the big opportunities for people like Merida in the space, which is that fragmentation. You know, I, I, two so years ago, a lot so- of the MSOs have a really tough time winning organic licenses, right? Well, if think- you look at you look at the the big five or the big six, they end up having to buy them. What? Why are you guys able to win them well, and they can't? So I, I don't know you guys anymore. I, I actually am investing in licenses myself. I'm doing it in a different way. I think what. First of all, I think that part of the space is is probably the most problematic from just buying licenses because the you have this huge dichotomy between people who have won and think what it's worth and what's it worth to a company like Cresco. And and I think having been involved in Valley Agroceutical, I didn't win that license. I Merida invested in a company that had won one of the New York ones. And I think um, one of the challenges in, in that is a lot of the regulators are hyper-local. Like they may not even understand the significance of Cresco saying hey, we're doing this, we've had 400 harvest and never had a problem, right? I don't think the people who are evaluating these in states actually even understand to a granular level. They might understand the what the information means and how to, how to contextualize it, but they don't really understand how hard it is to do at scale, replicatable, and so they're probably missing some of the nuance and significance because they've never been in a facility. They've never been, you know, they've never walked through and understand the pragmatic results of that. And I think, you know, when you look at like a harvest winning in Pennsylvania uh, and they won a lot and then in Jersey, I think you're starting to see a little bit of a flip of the switch now where the balance sheets, where you can yeah, do but, enough. But, but MSOs cure, are starting to win more, but, I but feel. But Cure Relief hasn't really won much and neither has yeah, you're, you're, Acreage. Acreage has not never won. won a license ever, I don't think. Yeah, Except no. for maybe, no, maybe in Pennsylvania they won something. Whatever. I mean, realistically, but, like, well, Acreage I mean, is a great company, but. Yeah, so I think, because I, well, it, I don't know how much time these companies, I don't know if they have a professional app writer and I, and. And I think also a lot of the local jurisdictions maybe think of that as a negative. Like, what's the point of having a Pennsylvania program if you're going to give it to someone who's in 13 states? And I'm not sure if that's a natural, like, regional bias, but I can tell you, having been and applied in a lot of states, there's definitely different regional biases in this country. There's different, uh, you know, there's this concept of Minnesota nice where uh, early on in, in, and, and, you know, I just love telling people because I don't really get to talk about some of the, you know, individualistic things, and I'm not going to write a book probably. So, you know, the chance to sit with you and talk about some of the funny things that have happened on the ways. So we were in a Minnesota, um, we were helping, we were pitching investors in a hyper-local way. Hey, this is something we're doing. We've done this in Connecticut. We're hoping to win in Minnesota. And, you know, if we're if we're fortunate enough to win one of the licenses there, this will be great. And it was a big investment thing. It was at a, at a country club outside the the, the city of, uh, of Minnesota. It was right outside. And there were probably about 100 people there. And someone in the front row kept looking at the model and asking questions like, what about the ramp in year two? And I was trying to explain that it's harvest-based. And by year two, you get into perpetual harvest and that that's when you really scale. And, um, and which we've seen to be obviously the truth, except for if your harvest gets ruined like in some of the big Canadian LPs. But um, so <laughs> Yeah, they lose an entire... Well, hey, you, you know, you can read my Twitter feed if you want to know the Cantra story. You don't even have oh, to We're going to talk about, about your Twitter feed I'm in sure. a little bit. Yeah, so a- anyway, so... Uh, I'm sure it's always it's 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 becoming more of a subject. Maybe I should just go dark and just stop doing it. But um, so I was. Please don't. Oh, okay. So I was pitching the you know these these hundred investors, and I had our partners were there, and and some of my partners from Connecticut were there, and and this guy kept asking questions, and at some point I, I just said to the the person, so I said, sir, you know I I think, and I could sense a lot of movement in the room, 
So people were getting restless with having this guy dominate the, the Q&A. So I said, sir, you know, why don't we talk after? It seems like you have valid questions, but you know, to be honest, I, I think the rest of the room wants to move on, and I'm happy to answer every question you have later. And um, so one of the Minnesota guys came up to me after, and he goes, you know, we, in Minnesota we have this, this concept of Minnesota nice where we don't really like confront people. He's like, if that was a Minnesotan doing that pitch, he would have let this guy just dominate the whole conversation. So they bought me a Minnesota nice shirt. Oh, nice. And, and a week later, it was it, so it's, it's the shape of Minnesota as the C, because, you know, it has like a little bit of a curve. And, uh, and so those are the kind of experiences. Like, again, you can't replicate that. You can't pretend to know the regional biases until you've felt it, seen it. You can't, and, and that's where I think on the application side, a lot of people are trying to partner with local people, but you realize that that's fraught with its own problems because if you're an MSO, you kind of want to own 100% of it. So you're applying with this, this let's call it a, a, a super tanker, and you're hoping that these local, uh, local whoever's judging it, can, can understand the nuance and, and really the excellence that you've achieved, if you've in fact achieved excellence. And so I personally think that it, it's, licensing is one of the reasons why I run Merida and not necessarily a licensing organization is because I find people like Forefront who have been wildly successful in applications or, or grassroots or, um, name two of our clients. Yeah, Thank you very much. So, but no, I, I mean, but I'm just honest about the, the guys who have done applications incredible. I think part of that is they're plugged in at a little bit of a different level. Like Forefront obviously has a, you know, we're doing this, this accelerator for minority cannabis. Yeah. We're going to talk about that. So, so Forefront yeah. is, but they're deeply involved in social equity. And, and I think those elements, those bonus points are what can be driving some of the local elements. But we're going to see Missouri because Missouri is going to be a place where now that the landscape is, there's a lot of public companies and it's, it's, it's one of the first states that's done this in the last, you know, year or two. Yeah. So it's going to be like the place where the spotlights really shine. And we're going to see, I guess, I mean, I'm really excited to see what happens there. You know, I don't look at rec licenses where it's more of like convincing a municipality to accept you, like the host agreements in Massachusetts, as quote unquote winning a license. It it involves its own constituency and its own excellence and its own bureaucracy, but it's not winning. I think of winning a license as a competitive three win. You know, two men enter, one man leave, and New Jersey being the last one. I think New Jersey is going to be interesting too to see what happens on the medical side there. So, and I think it is becoming a little bit more like an arms race. Um, but the MSOs aren't winning them necessarily. Well. Uh- are you able, and I don't know if, if you're even able to do this, but um, to talk, because I'm sure all of your investments are your babies, um, who are your biggest winners? I mean, you talk about Forefront. Um, who else do you do you look at and you're like, I, I helped do that? Oh, wow. In the portfolio? I mean, if, if I had a look. Or in, uh, I mean, well, in general. Well, obviously the two before, licenses yeah. I want originally, uh, Leafline Labs in Minnesota, TheraPlant in Connecticut. Um, I was part of a Nevada operation as well. Whenever you win a license in the early days, I mean, in theory, you're you're kind of going to be successful naturally by owning one of the four growers in Connecticut. Those guys have gone on to do an amazing job and and build a real business on it. I'm not involved in that business anymore. Obviously, Merida is um, is something that I spend uh, the 168 hours that I'm alive every week on, and some hours that probably don't exist. But um, you know, I I think the biggest, if you look at portfolio, because I think that's just an easy way to quantify it. Um, the biggest winners in the portfolio that I feel we've really built, not just sort of invested, Grogen, Cush Bottles, you know, us us helping Cush Energy 
uh, get off the ground when we brought Summit. Well, you just keep naming our clients. It's a beautiful thing. Well, hey, I mean, you have every client. What am I supposed to say? But um, I think those are winners. Obviously, the MCP Wellness and the new MSO we're creating from scratch with with one of the subsidiaries of of Seoul, which is called CanCure, and the that California, Florida, Michigan type is really intriguing. And what we've done in Michigan is really intriguing because of the operators there. Um, I look at companies like um, like a New Frontier that uh, a lot of people, digital adoption has been difficult. And a lot of people don't really understand from the outside looking in what how much they've achieved. But I think, you know, pretty soon you're going to see the power of data. Yep. And it, and as it accepts, like, and even you, Lewis, I saw your, you know, the raised eyebrows. We, there's, they've really accomplished a lot. And you're going to see pretty quickly. Well, we stole, we stole Gretchen Gailey. From, oh, yeah, yeah. I love Gretchen. So. I mean, look, in the space, it, there there's... You know, people leave companies for a whole variety of reasons, and you know, one of the things, my next commentary that's kind of bouncing around my brain, is is um, an extended metaphor that talks about how you have to right size your company based on the vertical, and or and and even capital. That big isn't necessarily like huge isn't necessarily better, um, and and it's already kind of formulating because I really had a lot of fun writing the lemons, and I hope you had fun reading. Well, so it. let's so let's talk about lemons, yeah. right? Yeah, because sure. you know, everybody everybody shits the bed occasionally, right? Yeah. So it's easy to trot out like. This was a twenty x return. This was a ten x return. Though, did no, I? you didn't. You okay. didn't talk return, but you, you know, we asked, you know, who your winners are. What are the home runs? Oh, and, yeah. So right. vapor dosing. So just let me finish yeah. that thought for a second. Obviously, there's, there's looking at our portfolio. I think it's twenty nine companies now. The newer ones, you know, I guess the the, the jury's going to be out on those a little bit. But when you look at Fund One, the core Fund One, Steep Hill, uh, Grogen, uh, Kush. Um, well, can New you Frontier. just step back and talk about what that means for our listeners? Well, what the... so I'm on my third fund, and and how and, big are each of the funds? Uh, the fund one was 15 million. Fund two was 55. That money was raised in about half the time, and then fund three is already in the mid 20s. Um, we, and we've launched like eight weeks ago. Uh, the the biggest limiting factor was we are only allowed to have 100 slots if you allow accredited investors. And just to be true to the democratizing effect I want to have on the industry, I've I've never wanted to move to like you know, hey, write a million dollar check or more. So I've wanted to keep accredited as the core constituency. Now it's become a real limiting factor to a point where we we are moving to the QP model, which gives you more slots. So fund three will be much larger, but we also see an efficiency in having a larger capital base. But, you know, in terms of when you look at Steep Hill, the fact that we had to change management there and my partner, Jeff, is now the chairman and that we've almost had to rebuild that company from scratch in partnership with other significant investors in the company like Gotham Green, Fido Partners, the CEO, Andrew Rosenstein, that can be, you know, sometimes taking what could have been easily a zero. A lot of people know the original CEO of, of, um, of, of Steep Hill, David Lompoc, and then, and then J. Michelle Keller after. They might be brilliant visionaries, but the company wasn't working. Right. And, you know, our governance is a, a lot of what we do. And we just saw that it needed to have a change. They needed to be, it needs to be a high-performance lab. And so sometimes success can be on a relative basis. But I, I look at, there's not much in our portfolio that we've looked at and said, that's just an absolute disaster. So, so you, but everybody has a loss, right? Well, I mean, as has, of right now, nothing's been closed at a loss. I mean, there are companies that are growing at slower trajectories, but I mean, we have a pretty. We're we're doing more high conviction, so we're not really venture. So, if you're if you're investing in binary outcomes, you expect to have. If you're investing in a company at a million dollar valuation and it goes out of business, or if it goes to five million, you've made a huge winner. But we're trying to write, you know, more concentrated checks into more high conviction. So companies that have revenue already. So there could be a slower ramp, 
But we're not investing in companies that are pre-revenue. Or the, one, one of the few ones we did is vapor dosing, which I covered in Lemons a little bit because we're excited about where that's going. You know, I, I don't think I, I don't think our methodology is venture. It's a hybrid. It, it's it's opportunistic and. Because we're so strategically involved, we have our hand on the pulse. Well, you're doing the same thing that the Paxis are doing, right? And you're doing what Matt for uh, look, sure different. Sure, everybody is different. No, there's a lot of great investors. I think Merida's investment methodology what really differentiates us and and virtuous or not, right? People can judge for themselves. Is we are deeply involved in elements of companies that other people may feel are too granular for their bandwidth. That's why I have a bigger team. When you look at a fund. You know that might have five or six people. I have 22 people who are grinding through information, who are out there on the front talking to our companies every day to understand what what they're encountering, so that we can be proactive on helping them avoid disaster. So we've been lucky. I th- it's, some of it's luck. I mean, some of these companies you don't. It's hard to predict how a company is going to deal with X, and an X occurs. I think what we try to do is instill a philosophy of. You know that we're going to be like the the big lion, you know, in the Lion King behind the behind Simba. <laughs> yes. He growls and the hyenas go running away, but it's really the big lion behind them that's scaring them. I, and I don't mean from a scary, but we we're trying to be capital. And you know, it do, it does help when you have an investor who, if you're running into capital problems, and you can say, hey, we need two fifty or five hundred to bridge us, and we can come to a, a decision pretty quickly on an existing portfolio company. That's a really virtuous thing, you know, provided that they're operating in a way. So we I think we help shape the behavioral concept of it and you know if you know from lemons and we do a lot of research on behavioral economics and stuff and we just are deeply studied on the companies we invest in and i think that a lot and that that takes people and money and and i think that's why fund three is really for me that the it's definitely closer to the vision of what we always wanted we had our own friction i mean fund one was 15 million that's so subscale it's like it's almost not worth there was a point in december of 2017 where we're like is, is are we gonna make it because this is small, maybe we should just go back to licenses and doing our strategic thing. And you know, we we had a real existential, like, is this worth the amount of pure and it was unmitigated work? Well, so I mean, look, two years later, almost it it feels like that. But you know, try not to get me misty eyed because I I will, you know, I don't think about it that way. But it does feel like um, that existential crisis. And I really have to thank the team, the friends. You know, Kevin Gibbs, our COO, and Daisy, who joined us, who you met, and she's wonderful. Uh, people like Max, who have joined, um, uh, Jeff Monat, who joined us, who was an original investor in Connecticut, uh, the investors who believed in us. Uh, is Danny Moses a, a Very GP? Or he... Yeah, so he's a, he's a partner, essentially. Right. In all, right, look, but he's on the Danny. investment committee. Yeah, so I mean, he's on the investment committee, so obviously deeply involved. But Danny's the kind of guy that if you're not getting a call every day on things that you should be doing better, then he, you know, you're not getting the best of him. And he does it every day. And we, I probably spend too much time on the phone with him because... I learn so much every day. And He's so fucking smart. Yeah, it's just, and it's, and, and you know, I think I wrote it. But, in, but I have a question. Sure. How much of that time is him spent talking about shorting Tesla? <laughs> Come on, you're, you're, you, I, I, I thought He's right. things I don't talk about. I talk about that on every podcast. If you talk to Danny, he will bring up how Tesla is essentially, in his mind, a, a, a scheme. A Ponzi scheme, yes, he calls it. Yes, yes. I'm going to let you see. I, I, I'll say it. See how I have diplomatic no pro- I'm becoming? I have no problem saying See how it, diplomatic man. I'm becoming? I'm learning. Yes. But no, um, but I think. With with Danny, you know, because I brought him into cannabis, essentially, yeah. right? I think one of the things that I wrote this internally to the team to thank them really for their support in, in everything we're doing. Um, and this goes to the Tom Harrison's of the world, the chairman emeritus of Omnicom, joins Merida to help us run companies. 
Pam Galassini from Medgo. You know, I think the reason with having those people involved means you're having such high-level conversations every day that it allows you to scenario analyze what your companies are doing. And I think that is part of the reason why we haven't had a real disaster yet. So just to remind everybody, we're talking with Mitch Barukowitz from Merida Capital. So let's let's pivot for a second. You and I were talking earlier about what's going on in the MSO landscape, right? Um, we're recording this on uh, July 12th, and the biggest news for the last two weeks in cannabis was the firing of Bruce Linton, right, from, from Canopy. And it was because, you know, because of underperformance, right? The Canopy, they're not making, they're not, they're not growing, they're not making money. None of the MSOs are really... Well, I wouldn't call Canopy an MSO. You're, you're, but you're, but, but, we, we use LPs. I mean, okay. it is, they are different companies. So. They are different companies. But if you look, but you know, their their investment in in acreage is one thing. And sure. but if you look at at the the big ten or twelve MSOs out there, yeah. none of them are making their numbers, right? And it's not. Sure. They're not. It's like they. Yeah. You can, I've been doing you, this long enough to that maybe I've I've created a, an internal elastic engine that allow you know. But you're right. But they all right. came out saying, look, some of them are saying we're going to do four. You know, they said we're going to do four hundred million dollars top line this year. We're going to do three hundred yeah. million dollars. None of them are going to come anywhere close to that. Um, well, we're going to see, aren't well, we? Well, but a lot of it was but predicated. They like were predicated on, on Massachusetts, right? And, that, and because Massachusetts is such a shit show. They're not going to make their numbers. So the, the, the question I, I have and I had, I believe that we will see a, a major culling of the C-suite coming. That And I don't know who's going to go. And I appreciate you saying the same thing in public that you said privately. I think that, yeah. by the way, is that's us too. Yeah. Pretty so, much. That's my Twitter feed. Right. Like <laughs> I, 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 I think, and it's these guys are like you. Yeah. They are financial guys, right? right? They know how to go and buy licenses. They know how to financially stitch together a company. But when it comes time to opening stores, driving people into right. stores and buying product, right. the that's not what they do. The logistics is challenging. And, and having seen that from the ground for, for years, right? You know, you're coming on almost six years from the first license I ever won, watching that team build that from the ground up. Now, that was a grow only, but... So I, I let me start by saying one thing, which is if you're a private investor or an investor in general, and you invest in a company who's who, who where the the driving factor in your decision was what their 2021 numbers were going to be, which we saw a lot of decks, then you really have no reason to complain. It's it's on you, I'm, and I'm not saying I'm blaming the investor, but I mean. To going back to lemons, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to post it on Twitter, by the way, so people can read it. But isn't that the point I'm making, which is really sophisticated people who just wanted exposure early on, they, 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 they took the exposure that was available to them. And now they're making more sort of targeted decisions, which is really creating a landscape shift in the space, which could lead to expectations of performance, which could lead to a culling of those people. Now, I can't say why Bruce was fired, to be honest with you. I really well, he'll he'll tell you. Well, that's true, but but he'll but, tell anyone who'll listen. Right. Well, I, I've heard that. In fact, <laughs> we want him back on the in show. Fact, I think as we were walking here, there was me, we'll tell you my story for food on the streets outside of Medvin's <laughs> yeah. dispensary. But no, uh -huh. um, he, he, gone. That one. He is. I, I've never I, seen a person in it. I mean, oh, I've been in it. I've been, been in it. it? But we not, walked by right now, and there was so no, you're the one. There's no one in it. But you can't buy anything. Well, look, I don't know. I can't. I, you know, I, I think the New York program gets a really bad rap. I really do. I really do because I know a lot of patients who are getting product from Vireo and White Plains. Vireo being one of the real medical, yes. real medical companies. But, the, but, but that store, but that's just not in the right place. Not. That's not in the right place. No, but that, but they they put that there you because know why? they New wanted York? to have. That was a dick measuring thing. 
look, I'm letting you say all these things. So I just want to be clear. I don't know. No, I'm not just commenting either way because. Um, but I what big I big head nod by the way. I got the big no, head nod it, because I'm just trying to be in front of the microphone. But no, <laughs> I, I what, what what I'll say. Jeez, what I'll say on that is um, New York and California have much different you know, people, how they, people in New York are going to use delivery because that's the way that they've been getting cannabis forever. Hold and on. And, well, and everything forever. Yeah. Everything forever. And let's be straight. If you're a business person who is using it medically and you're inclined to go into a store, you're not going to do where half your colleagues are walking by. See, in California, if you're on Sepulveda and you're going to MedMen, Sepulveda near the airport, you're there because you want to get product. For most people, it's probably because you're flying out. Right. But whatever. Or so, Abbot Kinney. In, or Abbot Kinney. Yeah. Those are great dispensaries, and they make sense. A, a dispensary on 39th and 5th, I think, is a challenge because of just the of just how New York operates. Well, I don't, I don't know but if I, I agree with you. But I think long-term will be really successful. Eventually, yes, long-term yeah. will yeah. be really successful. How much successful. are you willing to lose to get there? Yeah, and that's the, the story about, but that's what you're asking about MSOs, is, you know, if you're trying to land a, a 747 on a 3,000-foot runway, you're going to have a problem. If you're trying to land it on an 8,000 foot runway, you're going to be okay. And I think a lot of the companies have to think of it that way. Do you which fly is, planes? I don't fly. Oh. I mean, I fly in them. <laughs> if, if, if you're in cannabis, you're not traveling. There's something wrong. Yeah. In fact, I won't even do the YY. You know, the, the Toronto to New York has become the worst flight. The YYZ? Yeah. It's become the worst. It's like nine hours for now, a 14 minutes. Were you minutes ever in the a air. Rush fan? I mean, I know Rush, but yeah, but just because they they have the song Y Y Z, and until I started doing that flight, I didn't know what it was. It's I, I, I've, and I, and if you do a Friday flight, it's likely you're getting canceled, so you better get ready to stay in an airport hotel till Saturday morning. Happen, hap, it, it has happened to me. It, it's and, happened to me six times. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, I which mean, is Toronto's why want, a great town. I mean, we, we you know we, we get ex- excited, we open an office there, and then literally it becomes the worst flight in the world to do. Billy Almost Bush. to a point where I'm like, go out of Billy, not Billy Bush. You got to go to um, yeah, uh, Porter, Isle, Porter, Porter. Yeah, Porter Air yeah. is the best. Yeah, the problem is then you have to go to Newark, and I live in Westchester, so it's it's inconvenient in general. But hey, you know, to merit investors, even if it's inconvenient, if it makes money, we're doing it. So don't worry about <laughs> it. But no, but so in terms of the MSOs, I, I think that um, there is they're about to enter a chilling, a, a really challenging period, which is we're moving from you can sell me a narrative to I want to look at your numbers. And I think that that is going to bring with it significant performance issues. But well, they're going to have to do the Amazon thing, right? Amazon lost money until it made money, and it lost money forever. I love when people use like the best example of a success as the rule. No, I mean I think that these are there are going to be companies whose their numbers may not meet the the standard, but they're on their way there, and that's okay. It depends on how much capital efficiency they have. It depends on a lot of different factors. Now, one thing I would say that might be the biggest thing people should look for is if your SGNA is really high. I mean one of the reasons why TrueLeave has been so successful is because they're they're only in one state. They dom they you know they dominated that state for a long time and they didn't have to travel to 14 different states like a like an acreage or a crate and you know they didn't have to do all these one-off deals to get the licenses. And so for TrueLeave, it's been that's why TrueLeave has an efficiency curve. Like we have a almost like an efficiency score on each MSO. They have a very high well, you're a busy guy. I guess your phone's ringing in the middle. I it's, forgot to put this on. Yeah. This do not disturb. So, first um, time ever. Yeah. Well, I, I always want to be the first. So, um, so I think when you <laughs> just look at be tru- gentle. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. God, that's terrible. So when you look oh at truly, God. and you look at the, I know, Anne, if you were only if you were here to see what's happening here. I'm kind of glad I'm <laughs> yeah. not. So, so, um, so when you look at that efficiency, and 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 Max, if you want to chime in on this, we we have like almost like an efficiency score on MSOs, where you know Max at the end of each week gives us like the here's the MSO comps. So one day I was like, hey, what have you been doing the whole morning? He's like the MSO comp sheet. So we we track this, even if we're not invested in each one, we look at it as like we want to know like which. Yeah, I mean, I I would say, you know, there's a couple of points, which is like 
truly, if you look at that, you know, they're already posting something like 40% EBITDA but margins. But there's a reason. Yeah, there's of course and a reason. The I reason mean, why. And then when you talk about Amazon, you know, they were actually, they lost a ton of money, but they actually had really good cash flows, right? And they had a really good cash operating cycle. And so I think- And that, their competitors were going out of business. Right. Books a Million, Barnes & Noble, they were killing- bricks and mortar so you could see just like Starbucks the old Starbucks model like flood the zone right. These and guys then close are, but the they're conver- this is a, complete, a completely a conversion industry right we are converting from the illicit market to the illicit market and when market. it gets legal and capital is more efficient you may get to a different mindset with capital inefficiency the one thing I that I always look at first thing I look at is what's the SGNA because ultimately and, and this isn't a judgment on any individual MSO I think each MSO is going to have its own virtues and its own cons I think the, the thing about the efficiency is how they spend their money now because now that they're getting capital's a lot tighter for them if you blow through that money you're looking at you know we saw the repricing in Mad Men with Gotham Green we saw you know we saw that, that a, a lot of the uh, okay just off the record yeah. when does Adam get fired there's, off the record while we're well, Dude. we're recording. You don't no, actually have I to don't, answer I that. Actually, and you know, I, you know, I like I personally, him personally. It's not even liking him. I think Adam is is a visionary. I think that I actually don't look at MedMen. I don't think the problem with MedMen. I don't. First of all, I don't think there's even a problem because we, we're not following it day to day. What I would say about MedMen is, you know, the underwriters. There were Adam paid people a lot to to be the to be including himself. That's. Hold on. Let me make my point before you jump in with the snark, because it's actually a, a valid point that I want you to consider. And and you tell me if I've changed your mind. Adam paid a lot of people and have made a lot of people a lot of money to be the 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 substructure underneath his vision. And maybe instead of just blaming him, maybe we should look at those people, the underwriters who took him public, that they should have been strong. The the areas he didn't know, he paid people to give him that knowledge. And I personally don't think it's like an Adam issue. I, I people. Look, we hear he's this an lot. easy target. I'm not. I'm yeah, not being not serious. Tar- I, but I don't understand that because I personally think like an organization with 1,200 employees, more professional advisors, and you know, look, the guy, there was someone who from BlackRock who joined in their funds. Clearly, if governance was an issue, I mean, is it unfair to say what did Adam bring him on for? Adam brought people on who could help him get to somewhere. The, the, people so, don't like Adam because of his personality. I don't. Per- I personally yeah. think I, I find the guy when he talked at NCIA in he's Boston. Great. I was inspired. I, I, I personally think. That I don't know why people. I, I personally, like, I'm not here to defend or otherwise. But I actually think, and I look, I've been fair on Twitter, or or at least some people think very very tough. But you know, I I personally don't think that that when you look at companies, if I pay someone to be a CFO, and that person like can't trust as an example, I mean, can't trust has a board. They have other people. Everyone's like Peter Seto has to go. How many people were involved in in not catching what were clearly like? If you have four licensed rooms and they produce two thousand kilograms one year, and the next year it produces forty six thousand, maybe someone on the board should have been like, "Hey, by the way, how do we produce all this if we didn't have these licensed rooms?" I don't think you can blame the CEO alone. Just like in Medman, I don't think, and I don't I don't even know if there's systemic problems. I personally, I look around and I look at a lot of people who have built better organizations because they've learned from Medman. That's what I see. So I'm not trying to convince I, you, but no, I'm saying listen, like I have to tell you, like he is an easy target just because I don't think he's even an easy target. The guy's smart. He's smart, and, and he I, when I saw him two years ago at the Cowan conference, yeah. he fundamentally changed my perception on how to think about he the difference. He things really that sharp. other people haven't been there. He, I first met him in 14. He, they were pitching us Desert Hot Springs, their, one of their grows. When I was uh, when I had just done Connecticut, and I was kind of interested in like looking around what's in the world. And I I heard some. It to me it was like it all made sense. These guys knew what they were doing. They knew how to hire people correctly. They knew how to manage these. So I, I personally don't think anything's changed there. Now I, I'm 
if anything, I think I separate no, the business no, from look, the corporation. The, yeah, the culture's the got some issues. Yes, the corporation. But again, if you're a brilliant visionary, and, and, and by the way, I was at a great thing called Capital Camp uh, two months ago that was not about cannabis at all. It was about leaders in certain spaces talking about, and Bethany McLean, who wrote The Smartest Guys in the Room about Enron, and someone asked her a question, what's the difference between a visionary and like what's, what's come to be known as a fraud, basically? And, and she answered you know, a bunch of things, and there was one thing, uh, everyone in the, the room was, was transfixed, right? And, and Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who was doing the interview, who, you know, he runs O'Shaughnessy, asset management, brilliant guy. He, he said something like, if Danny Moses was here, he'd ask you about Tesla. And I think one of the big differences between a visionary <laughs> and a company that goes off the rails, because I just finished the book on Genentech. Why did that company stay tight for a long time? The difference is the governance substructure. Is It seems to me like visionaries who can hire well, enough people around them. that was with Theranos, right? That's the same thing. If, if, if you can find people around you who have enough thematic knowledge so that they know that you're doing the right thing, but also the governance background and the ability. See, one thing at Merida that we, we have like a methodology, and I realize that a lot of companies should have respectful disagreement and confrontation is the way you get to a better answer. And I think sometimes in these companies, they're scared to confront, like a board guy doesn't know what he's doing, so he doesn't really confront the visionary. And what happens is it just becomes too, of a, too much of a deferential relationship. And so when you have a, a, like a frank and candid relationship with your portfolio companies, you can say to them, that's not how you do it. And I think the, the CEOs and the visionaries who can actually cull their behavior to be more in line with a normalized government. Remember, the business can be great, but if the corporation isn't built right, that's where you're going to run into problems. And that's why, for men, men, maybe the corporation has a problem, but the business? I mean, these guys know how to run stores. They know how to build stores. They know how to get product on their shelves. They, it's the best op- It's the best consistent retail experience I've seen. Yeah, so I, I can't, I, you know, I, I, the, I try not to use the best because I haven't seen each one, but... No, but they're that, great. I, what I said that I've seen. So, all right. So, so we, just, we've cut Ann off. Let Ann ask a the question. The people we haven't, who crush yeah. me on, you know, who always are hitting me on Twitter for being tough on them, just be advised, I just spent 20 minutes defending your company. <laughs> we'll make sure that we promote that. Um, so, Mitch, you had, um, you've mentioned this lemmings thing a couple of times, and I'm sorry, Lem- this is a lemmings, dumb question. Oh, lemmings? lemmings? I thought it was, okay, I'm sorry. It's lemmings That's, or lemonade. So, Lewis, I was right. It's based on Because I was like, what is this lemon thing? Yeah, so, and he's like, it's lemmings. So, lemons or lemonade <laughs> was the recent commentary. So, uh, you know, most people, it goes out to like 1,500 people, and we add people to the list, but it's kind of like we write this... I would say it's a data-heavy, information-driven analysis of, of an area. And then we use metaphors that people understand. So this one was about a Nobel Prize winning uh, essay about asymmetric information and how it can shape markets and how it almost destroyed the used car market in the 70s. And that using that extended metaphor and then the metaphor of what automotive technology was like in 1920 when people were getting you know mangled by a car, a bicycle, a horse a tram. All at the same time. All at the same time. The information coming together in different speeds almost made it impossible. Detroit being the worst example, but New York's where they had professional chauffeurs, the death rate, the the incidence rate was much lower. So I used that information to sort of show how cannabis, there's certain people that understand that speed and can contextualize it. And if you're an individual investor and you're dropping money like 500 grand or a million at a shot into companies just because you met them at like Green Table or at ArcView, you may want to Re, you know, rethink your strategy because you don't know those companies as well as you think. And um, I was just making a point about how, and here's five tips to how you can look at a company to get to like a merit of light, you know, analysis. 
So it's lemons, not lemmings. It was my fault because I I slacked her because I thought. I, it was, I wish I would have thought of that. That would have been a great title. Because I Lem, thought lemmings or lemonade. That's what I thought it was. I'm not know? that because I'm not yeah. on your list. So yeah, you know, I think you are now, but you know, we'll make sure to get you on. Okay. There. Well, because you forward ah. it and charge people a hundred bucks to read it. You know, I'll, so I'll pay for it. Yeah. It's worth it. <laughs> no, never, <laughs> never. We're democratizing the industry. Um, can we talk a little bit about your partnership with the Minority Business Cannabis Business Association? We just spoke with um, Shanita Penny yesterday, actually. Um, and uh, can you just talk a little bit about that, what it is and why you did it? Well, we did it because we want to see, uh, we think that while everyone acknowledges oh, that- What is it? Okay, so it's a partnership by which we're going to fund Merida. We are carving out a piece of our fund three to deploy capital specifically into either minority, women-owned, Disadvantaged, criminal, whatever that disadvantage might be, it's it's uh we want to invest in those businesses, and we think that if done the right way with the right stewardship, that those businesses can then take lessons, that they can then amplify in their own way, sort of a pay it forward, and um, we created it really because I'd been watching what the Minority Cannabis Business Association has done, a very scrappy organization, Shanita, Brandon, Todd, the whole the whole team. If I'm forgetting anyone, I'm sorry, but um. The, that that team is amazing. Uh, Jessica Velasquez, I think, is another member. And I've watched what they've been doing, and I, I wanted to make a difference. I didn't want to just be someone who always talks about how we should do this and it's a great talking point and not do something. I wanted to actually, you know, it, putting it through the Merida filter, I felt like we could find some great businesses. And we've gotten, I, I want to say, somewhere around 60 applications so far, and some of them are wildly intriguing. Some of them are mature businesses or more mature. Some of them are totally startup. You know, a few of the applications haven't been great, but I'm excited. I'm excited to work with these companies, to have them in the Merida offices, to uh, to in, uh, interest them in our in our portfolio and show them, give them some strategic help. Because it's not just about starting a business. I think one of the things that really concern me is the social equity. Like what? there's guys like Keith Stapleton who have Purple Heart out uh, in that's Oakland. A- Keith Stevenson. Stevenson. Sorry, Keith, Keith Stevenson. Stevenson. Purple Heart yeah. Collective. I love Keith. Keith's right. a, a wonderful... I mean, I hope he applies. I'd love to fund his... And in fact, I tried to get some fun too. He needed some capital. He was trying to build a grow. Yeah. You know, I think um, uh, the one of the challenges is that, first of all, is that you? everyone might not have seen, so you know, we'll tweet about it, and I'm, I'm glad you guys brought it up. This won't come out in time for that. So it closed on the 15th because oh. we didn't want to have it open forever. But um, Fund three? Or? It's fund three. No, okay. no, no. Fund three doesn't close. The, the application oh, the applications phase. Because, yeah. Yeah. and then we'll have new ones. But of the sixty, I think there th- we we could end up having a relationship with thirty of them. But what I, you know, one of the things that concern me is a lot of the ways that that government is addressing the the disproportionate criminality of minorities or you know the war on drugs, and is to just say here's a license in L. A. or here's a license in New York. And running a license is a hard business. It's capital intensive. So if you don't give anyone anything else. Just giving them a license like might lead to where they can be taken advantage of, or so with us we'll negotiate, you know, valuation with them on a, in a fair way. But we're also going to give them our whole portfolios. Doors are going to be open. Our management time, um, anything we can do to help these businesses, just like we do with our rest of our portfolio. You're not money. You're smart money. Well, I don't even. <laughs> sure. Well, well thank no, you for but, saying but that. But you, but. I mean, it's like you're taking an act. It's not like you're just giving them a check. You are giving. I expect them, them to their work experience. in our office several yeah. days a month, so they can be there when we're meeting with other companies and so that we can be relevant to them in, a, in an impactful way. And it's also in some ways to help them build the, look, th- this isn't a judgment, but just giving someone a license, how many companies 
have just turned a license without capital or without any type of stewardship into a successful business, almost no one. Now, maybe you get lucky and you sell that business to someone else for more, and then you know they come in and they, so maybe you made a, a good trade. But in building the businesses, some of the models, one of them is uh, around um, educating people of color of, of the, the virtues of CBD. Or, these are interesting business models where I, I hope to learn as much as I teach. And, and that's just our way. You know, we, we don't really, you know, I, I know people make this joke about how Merida's, we're not shy to say what we do well, but the reality is we're still learning just as much every day. You know, every day is a learning experience. Can't trust a learning experience. Um, you know, Bruce Linton getting fired is a learning experience. And, and for everybody, for everyone. And, and we're just, we want to have our ears open. And I think, you know, once you think you're Goliath, then you lose that David mentality. And, Anyone who's been around us more than three seconds knows we we still think we're David. Okay, so we're we we're just about out of time. Okay. Um, we have one more question, which we ask everybody. It's called "While You Were Sleeping." So what this means is, you wake up tomorrow, you open up the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, and there is the story, the most underreported story in cannabis. What is the media missing, and what should they be recovering? Because you know there is not enough coverage of. Well, it's gonna, I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record because I write about this a lot. But I do think that when you look at how the medical industry in a normalized way uh, operates, and, and there was a recent article on JAMA, the, the Journal of um, uh, Association of Medical, uh, I'm sorry, the American Journal Medical of American Association. Yeah, which is an impactful journal. When you look at how doctors and, and uh, practitioners and anyone in the healthcare industry consumes information or how they, how they get behind a... A medicine or anything we're in we're, we're the the nascency of the medicalization of cannabis and CBD the the nascency of the 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 structure around what this looks like when it's a personalized medicine and everyone can say based on my blood type or based on what I have or what I'm taking here's the cannabis I should consume or here when you think of what that medicalization looks like from our investment in CB2 Insights, which is a medical prescribing and data company. Client. Amazing. I think I might have recommended you guys to them, actually. <laughs> Thank you. But um, when you look at what that looks like, the little friction elements that have to go away, and, and the commentary I wrote before was about how Advil became a medicine and how it took 25 years. Anandamide was essentially discovered 25 years ago, right? The, the endocannabinoid system. So Dr. Ravi Mashulam, and when you look at that. Client. Right. Oh, God. So I'm going to try to... I, now you're making me dig in for a non-client. Sorry, so, I'm sorry. Um, but when you look at... MedMen's not a client. No, MedMen's yeah. not a client. Well, now we know Lewis talks his book. It's terrible. I know. So, <laughs> so, but, but we know when why, you look yeah. At, when you look at what the medicalization means from a reimbursement, chiropractic care, 1980s, quack medicine, insurance starts to look at the cost-benefit analysis, the lowering of opioid usage or, or other medicines and other general wellness... All of a sudden, starts getting reimbursed. More applications to chiropractic schools, more holistic medicine. So when you look at the changes that radiate out from a more uh, a more acceptance, what gets acceptance? Information, data, research, et cetera, et cetera. And we're really young on that. And because of that, the the system that is being changed in your body. We're only 25 years into understanding, into knowing that system even exists. Yeah, there's only six medical schools that even talk about the endocannabinoid system exactly. in the Exactly. So when you look at how young that is, so what Merida has done as a thesis is we're starting to look at what those friction points are to cannabis becoming that segmented, molecular-based, 
And and I'll tell you, that's the, the to me the unwritten story isn't about the sexy part about you know a billion dollars of sales in Colorado. That's great, but when this is when this becomes a medicalized product, uh, similar to how carboxylic acids became the underpinning of aspirin, Advil, blah 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 blah, whatever. When you look at that, you're talking billions and billions of dollars, like the snap of a finger. And you know what does Pfizer spend on medic, botanical, medical, and research? And when you look at that, this is like everyone's going to look at the the constellation canopy and be like, yeah, that was. Do you remember that one first four billion? Because Pfizer just put twenty billion into stuff. Right. And I think, and I'm not saying. I mean, maybe it doesn't happen that way. But when I look at the medicalization, I think that is the biggest unwritten story to this day. And I keep talking about it, maybe because I've made investments that sort of. You know, solve some. So of those you mean things. you're talking your book? I'm not talking my book because I'm not talking about a company per se. <laughs> I'm teasing. But no, I know, I know, of course. But no, I think that is. I mean, and and don't you agree that that is something you don't read about every day? Every day. But you should be reading you, about it every day. Well, but about the reason doctors, is they don't have. They're not doing the research. Ninety percent right? of the doctors in this JAMA, and I'll forward you that article. Ninety percent of the doctors in this article admitted to learning more from cannabis usage from their patients. That tells you there's no desk reference. There's no this. There's no that. Because so. because it's a, a schedule one because of the F, because the FDA is right. and Marvin Washington is going to get that changed. His lawsuit is going to get it changed. That's actually again another the other thing I think isn't talked about a lot. Last thing is is um, you know there's been 60 administrative law uh, decisions that have mandated reimbursement of cannabis usage, and we know there's a Supreme Court case that that with cannabis. So there's been the last, the most recent one was Egg Harbor, New Jersey, had to reimburse one of its workers because workers' comp is good. Think about it. If a guy's using a forklift, he cannot use opioids, right? He can't use it. But if he throws a CBD patch on, his pain goes down and he can go back to work. The, if you look at the amount of billions lost every year on workers' comp, time lost, it's it. that's why the medicalization, in my opinion, and by medicalization, I mean the broad spectrum of what has to change in our society. You know, and and I want to make one shameless plug. On Monday, and I this is another luck. Is I wrote a little bit about the disruption of cannabis, that the coming disruption on elder care, assisted living, and and stuff. And I'm speaking at an assisted living, and and I forgot IL. I think it's called independent living and elder care at a conference that has nothing to do with cannabis. There's no one there with cannabis, and I'm on a, a panel with a nurse clinician about you know for a multi multi billion dollar assisted living company because they're starting to realize just like. Casinos spent a lot of money retraining their personnel on how to deal with stone people versus how do you deal with <laughs> drunk people. Yeah. Think so you know Forefront, Forefront yeah. our client. Yeah. Um, we have a small investment in Forefront, but we love them. I love we them. We love them. They're but great they, guys. But they send, they have relationships with senior centers where they send like vans to take seniors. They will educate seniors on the use of cannabis. And then they'll help them get it. And then from forefront, one hundred percent. So this is but that's just a, speaking, but that's, but that's broadening but that's the tent. But that's the change, and that's the change that's coming. Is if you look at the consumer data study that New Frontier did in partnership with MJ Freeway, which is now called Akerna, our client. Yeah. Which well, okay. So uh, <laughs> you keep doing it, and well, it's just too Jesus. easy. Yeah. It's uh, do I have a uh, uh, and you know what I need? I need a shock button where I can collar him and make Lewis and just shut him yeah, up. Yeah. Just it's just it's great. <laughs> so, but it, it's interesting when you look. I'd invest in that. When you look Our at client. Yeah, when you look at that consumer study, the, the fact is, fifty-five year old there is a they are they are going to be using the plant the rest of their lives. They're going to be spending money on it, and they're not going to go to an assisted living facility that's going to stigmatize them. And when you look at that that and we have this four part thing called de- legalization. 
most people think legalization is the last step in normalizing. It's actually the first step because people who are scared to go to jail do not engage in certain behaviors. So legalization leads to a destigmatization, which leads to a colonization of the mindset, which leads to a normalization. When you look at those four things, we're kind of in stage two because a lot of people are starting to jump into the legalization side. Like it's go it's moving on, so I can now take the okay. Risk. We got to stop because yeah. you got to go. Yeah. Um, this was awesome. We got to have you back, man. Hey, my pleasure. Honestly, I, I thank you so much for even wanting to hear from us. Ah, I really appreciate dude. it, dude. Oh my god, of course. Yeah. Big fan. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna let you go. All right. Thank you very much. Thank oh, you. Yeah. Thank thanks, you. Lewis. Thanks, thank Anne. you, Mitch, and thank you, Max. Thank you, Max. Our thanks to Mitch Brukowitz, the managing partner of Merida Capital. Find them at meridacap.com. That's M-E-R-I-D-A-C-A-P.com or on Twitter at Merida Cap. And as always, if you want to find us on Twitter, we are at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Or feel free to drop us an email at greenrush at KCSA. And don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. One take, Shay. One take.